Today, we discuss the Great Reset. What is the Great Reset? The Great Reset is the Great Reset from movies to comics. How did popular comic book superhero movies of the last 20 years reset comic book movies, comic book characters, and comic book publishing? How did characters that could never chart in the top 50 suddenly become number one box office giant blockbuster successes and and the product and the merchandise is everywhere it's on the shelves at your local retailer you can't escape it it's at the corner market it's because the movie put that character square in your sights and gave it the rocket fuel that the comic books couldn't and now that character is everywhere from ant-man to the authority we are going to take the deep dive all the way into the great Movie Reset, how movies reset comic books on an all-new Observations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, hence the Observations. Yes, I have been doing this for 37 years. No, not the podcast, comic books, making thousands of pages and, and, and hundreds and hundreds of comic books. That is my passion. It is it is something that I've been fortunate to do uh, and provide my livelihood and provide for my family for 37 years. It is it is something that I am never not completely and totally humbled by, and it just inspires me to take part in this world and and to be able to have been a giant comic book fan, as big a fanboy as you could possibly imagine, and make comic books my living. and And I have just uh, when people say live in the dream, I, I feel like I have been living the dream. I do not have uh, two mansions or, or a yacht, uh, you know, uh, uh, like that, like that very famous Elmer J. Fudd from from uh, from, <laughs> from Bugs Bunny fame. I am Elmer J. Fudd. I own a mansion and a yacht. Uh, no yachts, uh, but but it, it has been it has been my dream. How, however, you calculate living your dream. Comic books, making comic books has been my dream, and I have been so very fortunate, so very humbled to be a part of them. This podcast has been around for about three years. Love talking to you guys about comic books, love talking to you guys about all things comic books and pop culture and how they've merged and become one big thing. And it kind of is going to be the dominant subject that we're going to discuss today because I just, it, you can't you can't outrun it, you can't escape it, you can't ignore it, and it, it's actually going to turn out to be a, a, a fairly timely topic in regards to all the, the the headlines that have been running at us uh lately literally and i'll get back to this later but I, from ant-man to authority is is kind of the framework of of some of the things we're going to discuss today and really what it is is in my lifetime especially and 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 in, in more so in my kids lifetime who are all hovering in their 20s i have i have my old, my youngest is 19 and and uh so and just turned 19 so still has one year what one year left until 20, but, but for 20, 22 years, the complete industry, comic books, superheroes has, has radically been altered. And we're going to kind of discuss, really drill down deep and discuss the, the, the different steps along the way that, that transformed comics, how movies reset the comic books, how, how movies reset the comic book business is really, uh, something that we're going to dive into today. And part of it is a result of some of my recent podcasts. And again, you guys just, just know how grateful I am that you listen to anything that I have to say. 
if you've listened to the things that, that I've had to say, you, you understand how obsessed I am with comic books and superheroes and the people that made them. Really, most importantly, the people that made them because each people's unique approach to the comic book and the comic book superhero, it has dictated a different version of that comic book and that comic book superhero. And it has always been so interesting to me to see how uh, one group of talent can take over a character, transform them, take them from you know the seller all the way to the penthouse, and and increase their sales, you know whatever, and and move the needle, get fans excited, change the perspective of any certain character. Obviously, there are characters in the comic book world that seem somewhat bulletproof. They are uh, they, they they are just uh, w- w- Teflon, Spider Man, Batman. They are they are the two constants. Of of Marvel and DC, the X Men is 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 up there. Maybe the Justice League is the mirror. Um, they, they they have slight gives give and take in in their in their popularity. They didn't used to X Men for two decades was the gold standard, but over time, and I do believe the movies have affected the Spider Man and Batman maintain their extreme popularity um, and relatability and familiarity. The most important thing is the familiarity. You are just so familiar with those characters, and they're they're actually very simple concepts. Got bit by a spider. Um, parents got shot. You know, became crime fighter. They're they're just really at the very base, very simple concepts. And it it is just no small wonder that they remain the constants of both companies. And you would argue that at some point, and this is primarily because of media, something like The Walking Dead has become familiar and popular and in, 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 and at times more familiar and more popular than Spider-Man and Batman because we have just been part of, we've contributed to its enormous success. It didn't become successful by accident. The comic books were incredibly popular and, and then they became a show on, on a network that was not the top network. But Walking Dead uh, did what Mad Men uh, and, and even Breaking Bad before it didn't do it, popped, it broke through. You can go, but Breaking Bad, you, you're, you're about to harumph me with your Breaking Bad takes. I get it. I know how widely respected, beloved, and, and celebrated Breaking Bad is. It just did not do the numbers and the popularity, did not have the popularity, the accessibility of Walking Dead. So that's, that, that doesn't speak to one is better than the other. I am literally speaking to the familiarity, the market penetration, the, the, number of eyeballs that were eventually drawn to Walking Dead in its most popular seasons, which then when you ascend to those heights, it, 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 if you're going to lose viewers as everything does eventually, whether you are the best shows on television, in my day it was you know uh, the, the ABC lineup of, of comedies, whether it was Three's Company, uh, whether it was The Love Boat on Saturday nights, I mean, uh, Dynasty over Dallas over on, on, on uh on CBS, these these groundbreaking primetime soap operas that that riveted the entire country with their storylines. Who shot Jr.? You know the, the the most watched you know premiere ever. Those eventually lose viewers as well. What comes up goes down. That's in everything: sports, politics, entertainment, and but once you've achieved that apex, that like I mean, and, and literally, Walking Dead was an apex predator in its day. Once you've achieved that and you've got that awareness, then as you, for lack of a better term, 
fall, lose ratings, stabilize. Let's call it stabilize is the nicest way to put it. As you stabilize, you've still got such a familiarity. People, oh, I, I watched that show. Oh, yeah, I watched that show. They, they've, they already know about Rick and the zombies and the world and everything and Carl and Michonne. They, 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 they have already experienced it. Maybe they're not, maybe they're now going to ca- catch it gradually or maybe they're all going to come back for the f- finale. Whatever the case, it got that audience awareness. It became familiar. Spider-Man and Batman are the two, like I said, A-plus premier characters at both publishing houses, and they are invested in keeping them that way. Spider-Man actually had a rough-and-tumble existence in the movie business that we've covered here a couple times from the, the Andrew Garfield movies, which were seen as, as more wobbly. And, and, and then, of course, they had to reboot it, and, and those, the wobbliness of those movies, which was by no no way, shape, or form, please understand my perspective, was Andrew Garfield's fault. I thought those movies, uh, you know, I thought Andrew Garfield was great. I thought he was the, the, the best Spider-Man of the time. I liked him better than Toby, and I love Toby. Okay, Toby McGuire. But, uh, but the movies were, were, were seen as not as well-received as they should be. And it was, that, that point was the place where I was like, oh my gosh, they, they will reset anything as, as fast as they can. We've talked often, Spider-Man has had three Spider-Man actors in, in, in 20 years. Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. Do you doubt for a minute that, that, that there, there's going to be a fourth? Let's go from 1989, Michael Keaton. I know people like to count the animated series and all this other stuff with Batman. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go with the movie actors. Michael Keaton. Then you got Val Kilmer for one. Then you got George Clooney for one. Then you got Christian Bale for three. Then you got Ben Affleck for a, a few, and now you've got Robert Pattinson. That's six. That's, that is six in the span of 33, 33 years. We have had uh, six, six Batmans. Um, if, if I go 1990 to now, 30, yeah, it's 1989, so it was 1989. I just, 90 was my clean round number. See, I figured this out live on the air with you. I did not do pre-notes. I never do. This is a sicko stream of consciousness show. And and maybe that's why you're listening to listen to the train wreck that is my stream of consciousness. But how comic books reset the movies is all over the place. Now, I just gave you a, even though it wasn't a movie, let's say how the media reset comic books. How Comic books didn't reset the media, although they did when they finally embraced them. But the movies reset comic books, and the, and the Walking Dead is a prime, prime example of that. When I do these shows and I share them with you, uh, you guys are very quick to respond. And I am so thrilled that one of the recent episodes, an executive whom, whom I had met with, and many of you in Southern California will know this man. His name's Car D'Angelo. Hello, Car. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm speaking of you one more time. He has a, a store in the valley, in, in uh, Southern California, in, in the Los Angeles Valley area. It's called Earth 2. He's had it for, off the top of my head, two decades, 20 years, easy. That's not how I met Carr D'Angelo. I did not meet Carr, I did not meet Carr as a comic, comic book retailer. I met Carr as an executive at Universal Studios, a big time, big shot executive who was uh, in charge with trying to get comic book movies made. Universal had the rights to the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk. Uh, my manager and I went to see him 94, 95, 
1995, about maybe getting one of my comic book properties uh, put forth. Obviously, Carr read comics, was a fan of comics, and he was one of the many, what I would call the young hotshot executives that I would meet, and I can tell you all of them along the way. There were the Kevins, there was a couple Kevins, there was the Cars, there was the Bryans, I met all these guys. Carr had been, uh, he, he was excited about the development that they were doing in, in, in heading towards making The Incredible Hulk an actual big cinematic experience. And I, I mentioned in another recent podcast, again, how, uh, how fast when Hollywood believes in something and they, they believe that they can turn a profit on something, they will option it and make it immediately. We are seeing that right now with the imagination of Taylor Sheridan. Let's take the most modern uh, version of this. Taylor Sheridan gave us Yellowstone, which has blown up, not in its first two seasons, but man, did it take, did it take. And Joy and I, we've been watching it from the beginning and it just blew up. It's blown up in these last few seasons. And as a result, you're getting all these Yellowstone spinoffs. Now, but I know Taylor Sheridan as I first saw his name when he wrote Sicario. And I love Sicario. Oh my gosh, I could not have loved Sicario more. Then I saw his name on Hell or High Water, which I think is just like a literal genius piece of work. Like genius. If you haven't seen Hell or High Water, watch it right now. Just stop the podcast and go watch Hell or High Water. It is a great kind of a Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid modern day Chris Pine. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. It, it's so fantastic. I saw his name. He's written by Taylor. I'm like, what? Taylor Sheridan. Hey, he did Sicario. I'm really liking this Taylor Sheridan guy stuff. Now, during this time, my, my, a little aside, my wife's sister, she's a triplet. They're, they're all the same age, same birthday. My wife's sister, who continues to act, said, you know, he was my acting coach at one point. And I'm like, what? And she's like, Taylor Sheridan was a big time acting coach in los angeles so little little be in your bonnet there a little 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 factoid because if, if, if you then go and research that you will see that he was indeed an acting coach he had been on like i think sons of Ar- sons of anarchy is that am i am i am i right there i didn't imdb him before this but he had done some he had done some acting taylor sheridan had done some acting and uh and uh along the way he became an acting coach uh, an acting coach which my you know wife's sister had paid to, to you know to give lessons and, and to help out and so you know eventually this guy starts writing screenplays and sicario is 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 this huge hit huge critically acclaimed i would say i would say modest hit but critically acclaimed then he follows it up with hell or high water then uh i believe it was called wind river i, I hope to god the movie is called wind river otherwise i'm i'm, I'm in big trouble wind river with uh our our, our friendly you know, Avengers team of Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner. And that movie kicks ass. And Taylor Sheridan directed that. So you're like, whoa, whoa. This guy is, is really coming up fast. Obviously, he contributed to the screenplay for Sicario 2, the sequel. And, uh, you know, guy, the guy is on a roll. This, the, everything this guy touches is, is, is at the very least super cool, respected. Um, and and in, in the case of Hell or High Water, a, a, a pretty pretty big breakthrough hit. Again, you've got to judge it also by what did it cost to make that hell or high water without big set pieces, big you know, big special effects. It was a character movie, and it did very well. It got it got great buzz. 
So he then goes into television. He makes Yellowstone. And now he's making, you know, 1923, he made 1883. He's got Tulsa King. And he's got like what I, what I read, like five or six more shows coming. I consume everything Taylor Sheridan. I consume all of it. And Hollywood is buying Taylor Sheridan um, like, like, like nothing I've seen in my entire life, like John Grisham and his courtroom, you know, uh, uh, movies that featured Matt Damon and, and featured uh, Matthew McConaughey and, I mean, everybody else along the way. Back to the Hulk. Why didn't the Hulk get made at Universal? Okay. And, and so Cardi Angelo, upon listening to my recent podcast where I told you guys how much resistance there was to comic book films, he said, Rob, I'm going to tell you, you, you hit it right on the button. As you remember, we met at the time I was doing the Hulk and people gave Batman success to Tim Burton, mostly to Tim Burton and, and very little to the actual comic books themselves. And again, what I would hear is, oh, well, Batman was well-known. Let's get back to familiarity. He was well-known. Batman was well-known. He was on the air as a TV show and as a cartoon, so they had, they had awareness. So again, the, the Hollywood approach, and you learn this very quickly, is they want to give as many reasons as possible not to make the movie, not to make the movie. They don't want to lose money. They don't want to be the laughingstock. They see all their friends when they go to the different um, eateries and, and now parties. You know, they're, they're back dining in Los Angeles. They're back. At the at the nice bougie restaurants, the 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 the, the sushi restaurants, um, the big classic restaurants, the, the the bars, they all see each other. So when Executive A greenlit a movie and it bombs, he has to go and hang out and watch Executive B, C, and D. And they cover part of this in the very excellent. Also, another show you should watch, probably the best adaptation or um, recreation of the Hollywood business ever, is on Paramount Plus, The Offer. Uh, which covers the the struggle to get the guard the Godfather made. Which again, if you have not read a book called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, it is a page turner. You will love it. I, I read it the minute I bought it when it came out, and read it from my New York to LA flight, and then read it again from LA to New York. Could not put it down. Back in 1997, 19, 1998, uh, it, it, that's roughly when it came out, and I just consumed it. And because I love the era of 70s filmmaking and and the birth of the blockbuster movie and the birth of the auteur like Spielberg and Lucas. And if I, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but I cannot, cannot, uh, you know, more highly recommend uh, that, that book as kind of a primer for going into what you're going to see on the offer, which again, covers the struggle to make a bestseller. The Godfather was a bestseller, but man, did the studio fight every aspect of that movie because they were terrified of the cost of the investment, and again, are the are the other studios, you know, going to laugh at us? We turned Warner Brothers tried to buy it away from Paramount, and they turned it down. So now, whoa, the pressure's up. Did I did I make the right move by denying that very very generous offer Warner Brothers made to take The Godfather off my hands? That's what goes through the minds of these executives. And so, hearing from Carr, I appreciated it so much. Thank you. Th- there are so many opportunities, um, you know, over these last three years. Uh, and each time people come through and, and they say, Rob, you nailed it. You got an, I, I am here to give you a reflection of things as they happen, some behind the scenes, some to help you understand what goes into you know, everything that's going on. And believe you me when I tell you that it has changed. Uh, obviously, Carr would not be struggling to make the Hulk made uh, you know, in, the, in the early 2000s. It finally happened with Ang Lee, a Hulk, a Hulk movie, actually, which I truly, I, I really enjoyed. I know it's a bit div- divisive, but I loved all of the comic book kind of uh, aesthetics mechanisms that Ang Lee built into that that movie. But 
again, it it wasn't as successful as Spider Man. Spider Man Bellwether got it. Got it. Can you know? Wasn't as successful. Maybe it was more expensive. I don't know. That's really what it comes down to. How much money did they spend on this? Because Spider Man, once it happened, once Spider Man happened, following X Men, which again broke out and broke the mold. And and when I say how movies changed comics, again, it starts with the X Men. Do you know that the other day when I had the podcast and I mentioned Blade once again, a, a couple of the hardcore Blade people came back out and they said, oh my gosh, and I, I got to be honest, this is the most frustrating thing because <clears throat> I don't know how many times I can lay this stuff out for you. Blade did not change the comic book game. That's not meant to insult anyone. Here's what you need to understand. And maybe I'm not communicating this fully because w- w- the facts are easy. If you just accept the facts as the facts, they're super easy to, to digest. Wesley Snipes had become a superstar in the 90s. He obviously was in, in films uh, like White Men Can't Jump, and which was a giant, broad comedy, a huge hit uh, at the top of the 90s. He would go on to be in several other you know, movie adaptations, but it was Passenger 57, which was also uh, riding a huge wave of what I call diehard movies. And, uh, and again, my, my, my movie executive brethren will, will, will back me up on this. When Die Hard came out, it was immediately, immediately like, wow, one guy against everybody in a building. Well, how do we capitalize on that? Well, they, they wasted no time. If, if you saw the... Uh, you know, Steve, uh, uh, oh my gosh, the martial artist guy, Steven Seagal. Okay. Steven Seagal under siege guy alone on a boat has to take out the terrorists. I'm a chef, remember, but I'm a chef, except he's a badass ex CIA operative. Um, but, and, and now they've, you know, they've crossed the wrong guy. And, uh, and, and so <laughs> Steven Seagal in under siege is the boat version of Die Hard. And this started to happen rapid fire, these different takes on Die Hard. And it was a formula that everybody, everybody was, 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 was literally the studios were cashing in on it left and right. And, and luckily enough, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes was early on in that. He was early on, um, you know, again, you may have seen Wesley Snope, Wesley Snopes, Wesley Snipes as Nino Brown in New Jack City. That's really when he came to my, um, you know, when he, when he came, I, he, he, was a, he was a guy, I would, I would see him. I, I remember seeing his face in Wildcats with Goldie Hawn, but, but Nino Brown, New York, New, New Jack City, that was big movie. Saw that with my buddies, saw the 10 o'clock show, 10 p.m. show a couple times. Obviously, Jungle Fever, um, White Men Can't Jump, big breakout movie, but then came Passenger 57, Die Hard on a Plane. Terrorist on a plane, Elizabeth Hurley, one of those terrorists, uh, and, and, and Wesley Snipes is charged with saving the plane, landing the plane, taking out the terrorists. Really fun movie. Just completely leaned into the fact that he is a standalone box office superstar. That movie did tremendous business. Again, following the diehard man in a building, man in a plane, man in a boat. Later, we'd get man on a train. Obviously, man on a bus is speed. Speed is diehard on a bus. Um, Passenger 57 breaks Wesley Snipes out. And from there, there is no looking back. I remember going with Joy and her dad. We went and saw the um, 
uh, opening weekend of Rising Sun in 1993 with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. Then Wesley Snipes is in Demolition Man. The budgets are getting bigger. The profiles are getting bigger alongside uh, Sylvester Stallone. And he's in Money Train. He's in The Fan. I mean, we're not even in 1996 yet. He's he's a big movie star. He's a big movie star. And the amount of movies that he's starring in is, you know, doubling, tripling. He's just, he's in demand. He is a giant movie star. Well, he is looking for a vehicle that he would control. And so he found, I guess, he was looking to do Black Panther. And for whatever reason, probably like the same reasons that the the Cardiangelo at Universal as an executive couldn't get the Hulk off the ground because there was enough naysayers who would fold their arms and harumph. I'm not so sure about this. I'm not so sure about this. I'm not so sure that this movie is going to work. That's enough to just make sure that that plane does not get off the tarmac. Okay. And, and, uh, and, and that's what was happening in the movie business when only Batman was seen as a success until of course the glorious wipeout of Batman and Robin, which again, stopped any comic book movie in its tracks, which was going forward. Except Wesley Snipes found a way in. He got a movie with a comic book character that had never had a comic book himself. Yes, Blade did not have a single comic book. Now, we can't count that they then greenlight it because there's a $50 million budget, $40 million budget movie being made, whatever, $25 million, whatever the budget on Blade was. Now that the movie's in the can and you greenlight the corresponding special, that doesn't count. Prior to getting the movie made, Blade did not have his own solo vehicle. I came to know Blade as so many of the audience that is my age. He was a featured player in a critically acclaimed and actually very best-selling book. Went 70-plus issues, many years, The Tomb of Dracula, Marvel's Tomb of Dracula. Blade was a key player, featured character, uh, because he's a vampire hunter. And so Wesley Snipes had very wisely singled out Blade as potential for a movie. But this was also a time of big-time vampires, Anne Rice. And if you've never heard of Anne Rice, again, she's the John Grisham, the Stephen King, the Tom Clancy of the 90s. Interview with the Vampire was a huge, massive, monster, best-selling book, and it was a movie that came out, obviously, with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, Antonio Banderas, Kristen Dunst. This this movie was under the microscope. It had a lot of pressure to succeed, and it did. And Tom Cruise was, at the time, seen as going against the Lestat kind of description in the book. And he had to fight against that the entire time. And then he just nailed it and delivered a performance for the ages. I, I love Interview with the Vampire. I think that that uh, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, vampire vehicle was just an enormous success. It was kind of the the most critically acclaimed, uh, really the, seen as as one of the the best of all of the vampire vehicles at the time. But there were so many vampire vehicles, and as such, Wesley Snipes rode the horror genre, the thriller genre, the vampire genre into getting Blade greenlit. Yeah, it was a Marvel comic, but his superpowers weren't. Optic eye blasts, ice, you know, like Iceman. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't a, a creepy CGI tongue like the, the Toad. It wasn't levitating and bending metal and, and all of these other... I'm, I'm talking in the way that they depicted these, pact- the, the, these, uh, these powers in the X-Men. It wasn't the, the telekinesis 
It wasn't storms, lightning, summoning the lightning. It wasn't three uh, CG, CGI, you know, special effects claws coming out of a guy's a guy's uh, a guy's hand like Wolverine. X Men is the first movie that showed a wide array of superpowers in a way that no one had ever done. Again, yes, is there ice freezing things happening? You know, from 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 Mister Freeze and Batman and Robin coming out of a ice gun? Yes, not the same. Especially not the same when you get optic optic blasts by Cyclops, lightning and flight from Storm and Magneto uh, with his magnetic powers and and the claws and and I mean you just again as the X Men movies evolve, especially X Two, they had really gotten it down to how they portray all these killer powers. Pyro and his fire, Iceman again, just amazing depictions of these of these. Powers and I will always go on record as these Fox movies get some of somewhat of the 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 short shrift here. They don't they do not get the acclaim they deserve, especially X two X Men broke it down. Not Blade. Why? Blade was a Wesley Snipes vehicle first, foremost. Then a vampire movie. Second, then it was marketed as a vampire movie. These, the idea that you can go back in time and actually try and experience what we experienced. This guy came on and said, "How do you explain if Blade? Literally, I'm reading it." Word for word, Let, let's let's do that. Let's do that. How do you? And, and again, guys, this is an example of of uh, I'm taking something and using it to expand the discussion around this because it, it is really fascinating to me the uh, the the stubbornness with which <clears throat> people will dive into their positions. And this is not this is there is ten percent of the audience really is going to still lean into the fact that Blade somehow unlocked comic book superhero films it did not swords vampires some super strength stuff that we'd seen in other movies okay we've seen feats of strength and 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 technically superpowers in the terminator movies people punching through walls throwing giant objects hanging off um giant moving cars tearing through you know while while while, while the you know they're, they're driven through walls i mean again giant feats of strength and superpowers had already been depicted in science fiction films um, guy said to me, if Blade didn't move the needle for comic book films, then who great, who greenlit the two sequels, the new Blade film and the Blade TV series? And I, I this, this was like, what, <laughs> what is this question? It, the question answers itself. That question answers itself. If Blade didn't move the needle, why are there more Blade stuff? No, no, no. It's if Blade didn't move the needle, then why is all the, 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 the question is, then why do all these other comic book stuff exist? But asking if Blade didn't move the needle, why was there Blade sequels and a Blade TV show? I try not to think about that TV show, by the way. Just that, that, that's all we need to say about that. The, the, the bottom line is Blade was extremely well-made. It was very successful. Saw it opening night. Um, again, I'm going to give you a contrast. The year before Spawn was made, Spawn had millions of of comics sold. Spawn had millions of comic books sold. As a known property, it was far and away more familiar to its fan base than Blade, who was a secondary character in a Dracula comic book for Marvel. He had maybe bounced around some other stuff, but you get the point. Blade was not some top of the charts, top 10, top 15, top 20, top 30, top 50 comic book. He, that didn't exist. He was a character that a 
superstar talent isolated as a vehicle very wisely and 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 made this under the vampire horror thriller genre hit a bullseye one year prior almost exactly one year prior from the exact same studio new line cinema they made both of them spawn had come out but spawn didn't connect spawn didn't resonate in that same way given that spawn had now by by this by this time multiple years of toy lines and it had millions in comic book sales what blade had that spawn didn't was wesley snipes you had a big superstars stars matter you hear it all the time stars matter you're going to hear it if you watch you're going to hear it if you watch that uh show the offer you're going to hear them talk about you know movie stars matter movie stars matter so because they do because people show up for them blade in 1998 almost one year after spawn did bigger business had better legs to the box office was more successful even though it was less lesser known because it had its big superstar face and suddenly blade in the comic books was more relevant than he'd ever been marvel could do more blade stuff because now the public is aware blade blade you would think the same would have happened with the X-Men, that the X-Men would have entered a new level of high-selling X-Men stuff based on the fact that the 20th Century Fox film, two years later, had, had become such a big success. Now, the X-Men film was already in development. It was already being made. It was already on track, and they were very nervous about it. And when I mean very nervous about it, as we've covered here, they kept cutting the cost. They kept cutting the budget. In a recent interview, Hugh Jackman revisited the X-Men. <clears throat> And he talked about that time and he said that his agent recommended, his agent recommended as well as close friends to get a new, to, to get another job before X-Men came out. And, and, and I am reading directly from Hugh Jackman. This was carried uh, in, a, in a website called thethings.com. And, uh, I, but you can catch this in Vox and some of these other places that I saw this says <clears throat> Hugh Jackman told Jimmy Fallon as he celebrated the 20 year anniversary so this is three years ago when they were celebrating the, the, the 20th anniversary of the X-Men movie he said uh, he was encouraged to forget about the movie uh, and, and, and not worry about being in it given talking about auditioning for the X-Men because comic book movies weren't cool and then he says uh, Jackman continued to Jimmy Fallon he said uh, his agent said, book another movie before this one comes out. Try and get a big, uh, uh, a big movie because when people find out you're in a comic book film, they may hold it against you. Comic book films were not cool. X-Men changed the conversation. Spider-Man followed that up. And then the whole world turned upside down. And what do I mean by the whole world turned upside down? Well, the dominance of Batman was challenged when Batman Begins came out, even though it had a pedigreed... Uh, celebrated filmmaker he wasn't the blockbuster chris no christopher nolan yet but he was a celebrated and uh one of the hottest directors in town thanks to his work you know that he had already done in, in movies like insomnia which it, it, it just cracks me up how, how few people have seen like one of his best movies um and uh you know certainly he did not, he, the, the Batman movies would, uh, 
would enter an that they would enter an age. They would usher in the Christopher Nolan blockbuster age. During that time, because he would do a Batman movie, then Inception, a Batman movie, then The Prestige. He would he would mix it up. And <clears throat> but prior to that, uh Prior to um, to him doing Batman Begins, he was the buzzy guy. Insomnia, see it if you haven't seen it. I don't go and check out the premise. I don't want to blow it for you here. The entire premise, the performances, the acting is is off the chain. It's fantastic. Memento put him on the map. Killer movie, great movie. Follows it up with Insomnia. When wins the audition to get the the uh, the Batman Begins gig, and Batman Begins. Again, I'm going to tell you right now. Did, did you forget? Because I'm going to tell you, I, I think there's a lot of people who don't know. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to segue real quick. I'm going to segue real quick and, and, and tell you why I don't think a lot of people don't understand about Batman Begins. And what I'm mentioning about Batman Begins is the amount of money that it made. <clears throat> One of, if not my favorite, the coolest Batman movie, period. Um. When that movie came out that summer, you know, they had let Batman cool off for a considerable amount of time. I mean, you're looking at at almost eight years without a a Batman film. But uh, Batman begins, uh, you know, in the summer of, I believe it was 2005, made $200 million. Yes, $200 million. And, and the reason I'm segueing to this is, and, and, and hold me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back to Batman, but in, in, the, in the intro, I'm going to tell you. So I see The Last of Us. I like The Last of Us. So now let's repeat that. Rob Liefeld saw The Last of Us. He likes The Last of Us. As so many of you are turning on, you're all watching The Last of Us as well. Now, did somebody in my family walk down the stairs and walk along, walk by as my wife and I were watching it and say, hey, what are you guys watching? The Walking Dead? It wasn't meant as a put down. It was just like, what are you guys watching? The Walking Dead? So yeah, it's, it's, it's a familiar genre. But it's finding really cool ways to interest me and interest, I think, the masses. But when I saw the opening, the, the whatever 90-minute pilot to Last of Us, I was reminded in the opening, the opening 15 minutes reminded me of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. And the thing I liked about Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead was the opening with Sarah Pauly. They set up the world. She's at the you know hospital. There's a patient coming in. You know, this is our first kind of clue. She goes home to her suburban house in her neighborhood. She does her home life thing, goes to bed with her husband, wakes up, dude's zombified, attacks her. She retreats in a very intense, really well shot scene. Their daughter, sorry, their daughter comes in. Sorry, creepiest freaking hell. Sorry. The daughter comes in. That's it. She and her husband are asleep. The daughter comes in in one of the creepiest scenes. And then, you know, the, the dad gets it, then she retreats to the bathroom, and there's that entire battle. Now, I haven't seen, I haven't seen Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead in, in well over 10 years. So this is going on. Well, I, I saw it multiple times in the theater. It was the first time my wife had ever seen a zombie movie. And I remember the, the big triumph is she loved it because that movie, again, was so well shot, so well made, so well cast, so well written. I know James Gunn wrote the screenplay, as I'm aware. So... Sarah Polly fights to get out of the restroom, crawls out of the window, makes it to the car, pulls out of the car. Zombies are coming out into the street. She's backing into people. There is an element of the opening of Last of Us 
that was reminiscent to me of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. It just registered. I've seen something like this. I'm not saying I saw it shot by shot. I'm saying I saw something like this. I saw something like Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. That's what Last of Us, you know, put forth in me. Well, I made the mistake of mentioning that to another member of my family who then was like, you're a hater. I'm like, how am I a hater? I just told you I like Last of Us, but I was a hater because I challenged the notion that this member of my family had deified this Last of Us opening. And then I said, it reminded me of something from, you know, whatever, 2006, whenever Dawn of the Dead, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, maybe 2005. Again, I, I didn't come prepared. This is stream of consciousness, Rob, at his strongest. And uh, I was immediately accosted. How dare you? How dare you? Don't you love the how dare yous? How dare you? Just like the Blade guy. How dare you say Blade didn't greenlight our comic book superhero films? Me and my friends down at the bodega have decided that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> that's, that's not the way it's going to be. It's not, that's not factual, okay? Let's stick. If we can just stick. If we can just stick with the fact, okay? So I'm being accosted by this member of my family because I, I happened to compare something that he, oops, that that person loved with, uh, with something that I found familiar and how dare I. How, so here, here's, here's where I said, but have you seen Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead? Have you seen this opening? No. <laughs> That's the best part. No, no, I have not seen this opening. Um, okay, well, so, so, so you're upset with me because I invoke something footage that you didn't see and telling you that something that you really dig is reminiscent of this other thing yeah well yeah well still i don't think blah blah, blah. so so you know touched a nerve bottom line touched a nerve touched a nerve what does it have to do with batman begins i don't think anyone my kid's age remembers that batman begins exist the batman be, the, the, the nolan movies begin for them with the Dark Knight with Heath Ledger. I told you Batman Begins made $200 million. If, if I want to get down to the nitty gritty, it's $205 million. The Batman movie internationally, you guys, this is, the, this is it did 166. Do you know what the t- combined worldwide gross on Batman Begins was? $371 million. That's everything. That's all in. That's the entire pot. Okay, that's not the US. You go to box office mojo and you look at the breakdown of those numbers. Once again, the the Batman, the Batman Begins, which is my favorite of all the Batman movies. I love Liam Neeson. Uh, I love Katie Holmes. I love, oh my gosh, it is absolutely my favorite Batman movies. And I love the all of the ways that it broke with the Batman lore and Christopher Nolan created his own lore with the way that uh, Liam Neeson, Reza Azghul, you know, trained and and had a, had a had a part in the birth of Batman and his effect on Gotham City and the transformation of Gotham City. I just, oh, genius level stuff. This movie, grand total, 371 million. Like, what? Life bill? That made a billion. I'm back on the phone with my loved one getting accosted. Batman came back not as strong. But then, of course, you, you put the Joker in and there is some after effect of the tragedy of Heath Ledger. And the reason that I invoke this is when my mom told me in the summer of 2008, when I said, hey, mom, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to see the new Batman. I said, mom, you've never seen a Batman movie, but Heath Ledger, it's Heath Ledger's last movie. That's when I'm like, wow. My my mom was in her late seventies. She was going to see 
the Dark Knight because of Heath Ledger. So, so I'm not sure how much of that. But then, of course, you go, you know, the Bane movie, the Bat, was it The Dark Knight Rises? Is that the last one? It's called that did a billion too. Okay, that did that did. So, so, so the Batman then stuck. It, it, it stuck. I is that even a word? It stuck. It stuck. And then Batman was back on top, but not immediately. But not immediately. The Christopher Nolan Batman Begins movie was was almost. If you go, if, if you look for Batman Begins, as I just did, you'll see. Was Batman Begins a flop? Don't you love those? You know, no, it wasn't a flop. It was it was world building and it set the stage. And then Batman roared back. But here's the deal. Here's how movies reset the comic books. We got Ant-Man 3 coming out. Ant-Man 3. Let's just focus on Ant-Man 3. I'm going to go back to the Blade rules and to some of these other rules. And and, and Ant-Man did not have a top 10 comic book in my lifetime. Ant-Man is a character I've always loved. Whether it was Hank Pym or Scott Lang, I loved them all. When Scott Lang debuted in Marvel Premiere, I think it's 48, 49, 47, 48. It's, 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 it's around, that number, uh, around those numbers. Uh, the, the best creators at Marvel were, were, were producing that book. David Michelini, John Byrne, Bob Layton, three of the top five best talents. I couldn't have been more excited. Again, this is back in the day where comic books were not, you know, known. You didn't have a preview catalog. You didn't know it was coming down the pike. You didn't, you know, you didn't have a, you didn't have a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a special awareness of what was coming. And, and Ant-Man was a new Ant-Man. Scott Lang, this, 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 this criminal that, that now would steal the Ant-Man gear and, and we'd be introduced into a much more daring Ant-Man than, than, than the Ant-Man that we had experienced prior. Those two books are extremely uh, great memories, um, extremely, extremely great memories for this young fan. And, and the splash pages, the double page splash pages, it was a two-parter in Marvel premiere. It put Scott Lang on the map. Scott Lang was already somebody who was lurking in the Iron Man uh, comic book, but now boom, Scott Lang, Ant-Man. And that would open the door for him to be in all manner of different uh, Marvel comics, especially, you know, get Ant-Man back into the pages. Um, of the Avengers. But aside from that, he still wasn't an A-list top character. But then Ant-Man comes out. They're going to make an Ant-Man movie. They've cast Paul Rudd. The Marvel juice is flowing. Go back to that, you know, episode about, that I did about Marvel and, 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 and the, uh, the financial markets recommending to sell your Marvel stock because all they had left was their C-list characters. I'm taking that out of the financial report. The recommend to sell Marvel stock because all they had left was Iron Man, Thor, and Cap. And once again, the biggest, the, the, the biggest success ever in the history of this medium is that Feige took Iron Man, Cap, and Avengers and made them the predominant comic book franchise. Jumped above Spider-Man, above X-Men, above Batman. It was carefully crafted, and uh, and the audience came along for each and every move. And once the Avengers happened, they seemed to have just so much goodwill with the fans that they could pull off something like the Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and, and it helped that the Guardians of the Galaxy, that first movie, is brilliant. Well, by this time, now they can actively start building out more of their world. And, of course, you're going to get to you know, the Ant-Man film. And so you got Paul Rudd and, 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 and of course we all know, um, we all know all the, the drama around the, the Edgar Wright and, 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 and his, his, uh, 
his involvement with it and 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 then of course Peyton Reed stepping in and 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 doing so admirably the uh Ant-Man film came out this summer if you remember <clears throat> in uh In the summer of, was it 2016? It's got to be 2016. And uh, the Ant-Man film was, uh, I think, the first kind of, we can do this to anything. We can do this to anything. We can make, uh, we, we can make, we can make this movie into a giant superhero film. Ant-Man was a two, 2015 film. I had to, had to go and uh, research that. 2015, because again, the, every, everything is running by so fast. So Ant-Man spins out of, of course, uh, what they've got going on with, uh, with the Captain America films. And comes out, and Ant-Man's a hit. Ant-Man freaking uh you know makes 519 million dollars worldwide 519 million dollars worldwide and is a uh is a big giant hit and then he goes on to be in civil war and only increase his awareness his familiarity because now man we know ant-man ant-man was really a, a kind of a standalone movie that, that Marvel was trying to make that didn't have a lot of tethers into other stuff. But as you saw, it was funny. It was cute. It had some special effects. It had some Honey, I Shrunk the Kids uh, familiarity to it so that they knew the audiences would spark. But suddenly we have Ant-Man. Ant-Man who had never had a number one comic, a number five comic, a number 10, a number 20. And you're like, Liefeld, you're hung up on the comic book rankings. It speaks to familiarity. That's it. It just speaks to familiarity. $519 million at the time was more reminiscent of the early grosses uh, of of the early grosses that were being achieved by the Mar- Marvel movies, but nonetheless, Ant Man and, and I love to say this: Ant Man at the box office was more successful than he'd ever been in a com- as a comic book. Five hundred and nineteen million. Five hundred and nineteen million. You know, domestically it made one hundred and eighty. Around the world, it made three hundred and thirty nine. So domestically, they had reason to worry. Like, wow, is Ant Man going to take? But again, putting him in Civil War and expanding him with the Avengers. And now we've got an Ant-Man 3 movie that's going to make about, it feels like, feels to me that Ant-Man, Ant-Man 3 Quantumania with Kang the Conqueror is going to make about $800 million. I'm not sure it can get to a billion, but I think right time, right place, $800 million seems more than feasible for Ant-Man. A, a, a character, an original Avenger. Yes, he's been around since the original Avengers. He's been around. He had his own so, solo titles with the Wasp back then. He is a staple of early Silver Age Marvel. But as a blockbuster, runaway character, the, the data wasn't there. But suddenly, and again, I think, you know, the idea of shrinking and growing big, whether it's the attack of the 60-foot woman or, you know, uh, uh, again, Honey, I Shrink the Kids and all the other different adventures in between when people shrink down or grow big. Great powers to explore that will have visual component that will have a ton of punch. But like Blade, not a giant comic book, but now a giant known comic book character and, and a, a property that has 
you start adding those grosses up, you know, and again, let's look at, let's look at Ant-Man and, and, and the Wasp. I believe Ant-Man and the Wasp came out in, in 2018, but let me go do a quick, a quick uh, check C on that. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> Ant-Man and the Wasp made 216 domestic, 406 million international and did 622 million. So it upped its game at the box office. So 622, that's the number to beat for the third one, even though I think it's probably a little more expensive and you've got to account for the cost. Again, something, and I know this because I was out with another executive the other day. I'm not going to say which one. And he broke down to me how successful Deadpool was at the box office, box office given that it cost $56 million and it made just $780 million, just shy of eight eight hundred. And he said the budget to profit ratio on Deadpool is one of the most successful films ever. You can obviously other movies made more, but did you spend three hundred million dollars to get a billion? That's different. That's different than fifty six to get seven hundred eighty million. The amount that you put in is more to get the bigger result. It's it's incredible that fifty six gets you seven eighty. Now I believe the original Ant Man had a slightly bigger scale budget, and Ant Man two and certainly Ant Man three looks to have a very large budget. Now, again, something like a Deadpool, which was like a spawn, a big character that had millions in sales and awareness, action figures, video games. They were still nervous about that. It didn't matter. It didn't matter when Deadpool came out. The Fox executives, and again, when you, when you speak to those movies, they were very concerned. The X-Men movies had seemingly lost their way and were trying to reset for about a decade. Days of Future Past had done extremely well. The most successful X-Men movie to date. It was probably one of the more favored X-Men movies in regards to people's critical acclaim and people's critical um, re- re- reception. And they based that on, well, how will the next one do? Now, they it all slipped away with Apocalypse, which was just mishandled from the jump. But Days of Future Past was just phenomenal. And then, and then they were going to build, continue to build on that. I think First Class was a reset. It was the last stand where fans' perception of the X-Men was dropping. And Spider-Man 3 with the emo Spider-Man and the, and, and the original, you know, uh, introduction of Venom and, and, and Sandman, that that movie, the, 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 the third time out for both of those were tricky. And I think Kevin Feige has known that, so he makes the third movies in these installments extremely, they're extremely important. And it's, it's why some of them have produced the best versions. I, I like Winter Soldier the best, but I, I think Civil War is really strong. Obviously, I think, uh, I think Thor Ragnarok is one of the best. Uh, as a third entry, uh, you know, I, th- I think a lot of these, um, you know, if you count Avengers three as being Infinity War or whatever, I mean, the, the, the third installments are much stronger than they used to perform. Uh, Last Standing, and and then subsequently a year later, the the, the Spider Man, the third Spider Man, just they slipped, they slipped, they created an opening. What slid in there was Iron Man, and then and then the Dark Knight. Where Patty Liefeld is like, I'm going to see the new Batman. Mom, you've never seen a Batman movie in your life. But Heath Ledger. But Heath Ledger, Robbie. So, so you know, Batman got back on top, dominated no more. The Batman Begins grosses were a thing of the past. But the way that movies have reset is the Ant-Man effect. Is the fact that you can take a character that was not a well-known character and that you can uh, have that character achieve monumental, monumental success and now be a worldwide brand. That's the movie. That's the media effect. I I can go into a gas station 
on a road trip in Texas or Atlanta or Orlando, and I have, and there's walking dead paraphernalia. I I can have a walking dead mug. I can get a walking dead hat, a walking dead t-shirt. That is where the media took that property and blew it up. And you're like, Liefeld, this is all stuff we know. Again, but it wasn't always so. And so I'm just amused by it. This, this, most of this is just understanding the steps along the way and, and the triggers and that it all kind of died with Batman and Robin and Blade wasn't enough to sell, save it. But X-Men with its all in of superpowers and a bit, the biggest budget that a non-Batman movie had had got people, they turned their heads. Then Spider-Man, the Raimi Spider-Man just blew the doors off. Batman got a slippery start, but, but it regained its footing and boom, regained blockbuster, blockbuster status. And I've covered how the Avengers outperforming the third Batman movie, reset everything, set Warner Brothers reeling. How can we not have the biggest combo property anymore? And it, and it set off a decade of bad decisions, of bad decisions where they, how do we jump ahead and keep up with what is going on with Marvel? Because now they are running away with it. We didn't see $2 billion for the Avengers at the box office. And that's, I'm speaking of the Warner's execs who had become accustomed to Batman was the trendsetter since Dark Knight. And, 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 and the two and a half years that followed as, sorry, the four years that followed as, as, as the uh, Dark Knight Rises would get ready to hit us. And in between, Kevin Feige is launching Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, not in between those movies, but in between the 10 years of bad decisions that, that, uh, that Warner Brothers would, would go on to make. Feige is making Rocket Raccoon a household name. He's making Groot a household name. He's making Ant-Man. Guardians is another one. Valentino had the most successful Guardians run in the 90s. Big numbers, big awareness. Not those Guardians, but not like this. Not like this number one gazillion dollar, you know, worldwide brand status that suddenly the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, of the James Gunn, Chris Pratt era would, 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 would encounter. In fact, this summer is really a celebration of the lesser known uh, in comic books, certainly back of the pack, the Marvels. You can, you can tell you, but, but Captain Marvel made a, a billion dollars. It did. It was sandwiched cleverly. Another Feige, brilliant move, sandwiched cleverly in between Infinity War and Endgame to maximize because it, had, it was a piece of a chapter. You couldn't miss it. You couldn't afford to not see Captain Marvel. And in doing so, it blew up her brand. It blew up Brie Larson. It blew up Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, all of it because they carefully wedged it right in, in, in between something that you could not hope to ignore at the peak, peak Marvel fever. Let me ask you, if that wasn't peak, peak Marvel fever, are you feeling it now? Are, do you believe you're in peak Marvel fe- fever or has it broken somewhat? You know the answer, it's broken somewhat. Peak Marvel fever really, uh, for me, was, was, was like Civil War to Endgame. Like everything started happening faster. Everything was bigger. Everything mattered more. And again, characters that had not been comic book hits, were box office megastars. It started with Iron Man, who had never been a number one comic, but every movie is a number one film. Ant-Man, Guardians, this is how comics benefited from movies. This is how movies reset the table in comics. And this is, is as we head into wrapping up this episode, is where I get to the authority. The authority was announced. It was announced as one of the movies that James Gunn was going to do. And I'm really not here to talk about the movie because there's nothing to talk about the movie. But I'm talking about the comic. Because my good buddies at the time, especially 
the Jimmy J's of the world, the Marat Michaels of the world. In the early 2000s, The Authority was the comic that gave me hope. It was the comic that I believed. Like, this is something I can aspire to. I wasn't as big of a fan as, 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 as the first several issues by Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch. They're extremely well done. Let that be said. They're extremely well done. They just didn't tickle me. They didn't, they didn't get me going. It's like some people love the original Charlie's Angels with Farrah Fawcett. I loved them, but Cheryl Ladd, that's my, that's my preferred lineup of angels. They're all Charlie's Angels, but you swap out Jill and you put in Chris. And now we're talking, I was just more into Cheryl Ladd than I was Farrah Fawcett. And I'm talking about 9, 10, 11-year-old Rob Liefeld. Never missed Charlie's Angels, but one iteration I favored more than the other, but I liked the other. So the Farrah Fawcett, Charlie's Angels, for many, and, and, and many put that above all else, that first season, Farrah Fawcett, Kate Jackson, Jacqueline Smith. That's, that, that is, for many people, that's their Warren Ellis, Brian Hitch, the authority. For me, the Mark Miller, Frank Quietly stuff, just set off a reaction to me that I hadn't felt since the John Byrne, Terry Austin, Chris Claremont X-Men run. It was daring. It was bold. It was imaginative. It was violent. And let me tell you something. The depiction of Apollo and Midnighter is still one of the most inclusive uh, and, and, and one of the uh, best representations uh, of, 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 of gay characters, a gay couple. Uh, I, know, I know it's the LGBT, you know, I, I, I always get... Damn it. I always say it wrong. But Apollo and Midnighter are the single best representation of gay characters in comics ever. And fans, we love them. I, I have I, I always I always miss it's L G B T Q I A. Okay. That 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 is that is that I said it right, so I don't have to I, I just get always I, I get it I, I get I get it garbled. It's the best representation ever in the history of comics. Apollo and Midnighter were lovers, and they had tender moments, the kind of stuff going back to The Last of Us, the kind of stuff that everyone responded to in episode three of The Last of Us. Apollo and Midnighter had a tender relationship. It was romantic. It was affectionate. The way they were portrayed by Frank quietly, hanging out on the couch, watching um, television, playing with each other's hair, um, caressing each other's shoulders. Uh, they were in bed together. They were they were depicted as in bed together in 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 the year two thousand, so twenty three years ago. And you loved Apollo and Midnight and Midnighter, and they were an obvious echo of Superman and Batman, world's finest. They were, you know, another. And and I've I've gone over that. I had my own echoes. Supreme. There are Marvel has Sentry, Hyperion. Uh, you know, uh, the the the. <clears throat> Every publisher, every single publisher has some sort of echo. But here we saw echo of super of super, of Superman, sorry, Superman and Batman in Apollo and Midnighter. They were tender, they were loving, they were affectionate. They they truly through the writing um had deep feelings of, of love and compassion for each other, and we felt it. And then they would go break your jaws and curb stomp your face and beat the bad guys to a pulp. And Midnighter would just do all sorts of crazy, violent acts. These two guys were badass. They were absolute badass. Take no names. Uh, they had attitude. They had poise. They had flair. And again, the whole thing is, this is the best representation of a gay couple ever in comics. And uh, gay characters, period. I, I'm going to put the hard period there. We rooted for them. We as 
the comic book fans elevated authority. That book was the buzziest book that I can remember in the last 23 years. People loved it. People bought it. It was word of mouth. Is the authority in? Can I get the new issue of the authority? And yet it upset some people at DC. Uh, uh, you can go online and Google and read all manner of different articles about a, a gentleman named Paul Levitz who would have all manner of depictions of these characters in the authority, not just Apollo Midnighter, but all, all manner of pages and, and, and storylines redrawn. Um, the, the rumors, uh, again, if you go online and you read these stories, they will tell you that Paul struggled, struggled to, um, to, 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 to be comfortable with this book. And, and for whatever reason, that, that's not my story to tell. But I, I can tell you that, uh, that back in 2017, Rich Johnson and his Bleeding Cool uh, uh, had an oral history of, 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 uh, of the authority. And it, uh, it, it, it says that maybe it, that the management at DC Comics at the time, it, it supposes, it puts out there that they wanted to censor a kiss between Midnighter and, and, and Apollo during this time. And, uh, and then they talked to all the different people who were, who were uh, you know, working on the book. Richard Bruning, who was uh, a gentleman working on the book, and said Paul Levis didn't want to lose that flavor, but he, he wanted to rein it in a little. He felt like they were, um, were going <clears> to <throat> get away with too much. Uh, a gentleman named Tom Long who worked on the book says, I don't know if anyone has mentioned this before, <clears throat> um, but the books that we were doing here at Wildstorm with the authority was not, were not being as well received by the New York office because DC's comics weren't, DC comics were located in New York at the time. Uh, one of the colors said, uh, DC didn't like it. This is no secret. His name's David Barron. I'm just reading this from the bleeding cool website. I'm not spilling any beans, David says, or anything like that. It was no secret. DC had a huge problem with the authority. It was shaky at times. Uh, John Lehman, who had worked on the authority, said all these issues were in the pipeline, including the issue where they go in and they're going to kill some dictator in a little country that no one's ever heard of. Uh, turns out that that person was a real person. It upset the DC chain. Uh, they flipped out. And uh, he goes, I was sitting in a chair in the DC offices. Uh, when all the shit fell on me and they said, how could you let this happen? Uh, Richard Bruning returns and says, there were just things about this book that made Paul Levitz uncomfortable. I noticed some degree, some degree it was Mark Miller and what he was doing in depicting the Legion of Superheroes in an issue of The Authority. Paul saw this and he did not want this to happen because Legion of Superheroes were like his baby. Um, he didn't like that they were making buffoons out of these characters. Again, you go on and on and on. And, uh, and there's, this was constantly every day and you'd hear from the creative teams. And then at one point they showed stuff that was redrawn and the authority was a book that was under scrutiny to the point where they eventually just wanted it to go away. The authority, uh, was the first one on the market to be as violent and crude and raunchy and R rated, uh, invincible would follow in that footsteps and the boys would be the most recent iteration. The authority is brilliant. Buy it. Read it. I gave it to my kid. I said, you're going to love this. He loved it. He loved it from the jump immediately. Tim Miller from Deadpool fame, no less, wrote the foreword to the authority. It is that riveting. And he says in that, he goes, I'm jealous that you're going to be reading this for the first time. 
And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm like Tim. I ran to the store, the Apollo Midnighter, the Authority, whether it was by Mark Miller, Frank Quietly at the time, or Mark Miller or Art Adams, two of the best issues Art Adams ever produced are on the Authority. He was into it. This book inspired people. It was a little... The, the, the artwork I'm going to tell you right now looked and rem- reminded me of Frank Miller's Dark Knight. I think Quietly was very heavily influenced by Frank Miller. I think the book has a giant Frank Miller over, overtone. But the tender love story between Apollo and Midnighter um, was based on what I saw in Last of Us. If they can pull that off in that movie and they can do it uncensored, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic, a level that no one has ever seen before, a level of representation, a, uh, it j- just, it, it, it is, uh, it, it will be as progressive as anything you could possibly imagine. And then you have to remember how much we loved the authority, how much we loved this character, these characters, how much we loved Apollo and Midnighter. When Apollo got hurt, Midnighter hurt. He hurt in a way that we could feel it was, it was, it was palatable. And he wanted to have vengeance on, 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 on these people that had, that had hurt his, his loved one. It took you for a great ride. Again, very tender, but at the same time, when it was time to be superheroes and battle R-rated menaces because the authority was absolutely 100% R-rated. So the authority has been in the basement in DC Comics for what feels like two decades. And now James Gunn has wisely selected it to go to the top of the heap. I have no doubt that like the boys before it, it will suddenly become one of the most popular things in our culture. The boys, which again was a low-level not very recognized, not best-selling concept, is grabbed by Amazon, becomes extremely successful to the point where both my boys are calling me, Dad, are you watching the boys? Are you watching the boys? Dad, are you watching the boys? When I mention the boys' comic book, people immediately say, Liefeld, don't read the comic. Watch the show. And that's the kind of stuff that you just kind of drop your iPhone. Like, what world am I listening? Am I living to? What world am I living in? Where am I existing that this is happening? That people are saying, don't read the comic, read the show, it's that well done. That is how the media has reset comic books. We live in a world that Ant-Man is more popular than the Legion of Superheroes and the Teen Titans, two of the best-selling books of the 1980s, two of the top-selling books. You have heard me talk about the Legion of Superheroes. It had multiple spinoffs. The Titans, the same. These characters were ridiculously popular. These books were top. They, they, they paid the rent for retailers. They don't have big giant movies. They don't have anything on par with what Paul Rudd has experienced as in portraying Ant-Man. Nowhere near that success. And yet Ant-Man has never had so much as a family of titles, much less been in the top 25. And I'm saying this prior to the Paul Rudd book. Consistently, over decades. Don't, don't give me a one launch and a one shot. I'm talking about the consistency with the fans. And now we're at the authority and James Gunn's going to put the spotlight on them. And I absolutely believe this property is going to shine for many of the reasons that I've shared with you. It's R-rated. It's adult. It has representation. It's very violent. Um, rereading the same material that I gave to my son, I was shocked. It was so, I, was, I forgot how laugh out loud, funny and raunchy that it was. It was first one in. The boys was technically last one out, but the boys beat the authority to the punch. And now I read, how are they going to change the authority so that people don't think it's ripping off the boys? Well, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I say, just lean all the way into it. Say you were the first and, and, and lean, lean, lean into it and, and, and give it to us in the way that we deserve for the authority to be given to us. Cause the authority to this day and revisiting those issues still remains my favorite team book outside of the John Byrne, Terry Austin, X-Men seminal run that transformed that entire franchise and created a 20-year mega best-selling beast. 
those um, Mark Miller, Frank Quietly authorities are still that good. They hold up. You will laugh out loud when the authority uh, puts the world governments on notice and says that they will be dictating. I mean, it is the absolute embodiment of their name, the authority. Could not recommend it more highly. We are in a world where Ant-Man and the authority are, are, are the, the movie buzzwords franchises of the moment, and I couldn't be more excited uh, to experience all of it with you. But that is how and, and why movies continue to reset reset the table. They take stuff that wasn't the bestseller, but they give it the right casting, the right treatment. Hey, it's like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Boom, suddenly you've got a billion-dollar franchise in Ant-Man, when Ant-Man has never been a comic book that paid the rent for any retailer. We'll continue to revisit this as the media and movies continue to reset the table for comics and, 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 and examine those, those moves along the way and, and the stuff that works and the stuff that doesn't work. The stuff that works bears the greatest uh, examination. The stuff that didn't work, we know. It was badly cast. It was badly acted. The, the effects sucked. The story was bad. Whatever. The stuff that works is really worth getting under the microscope because it, 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 it's that stuff that's going to resonate and that's going to continue to open the doors so that stuff like The Authority, which I have no, idea, I have no doubt if they follow uh, the blueprint that was set out in those comic books, that The Authority will be the new, big, amazing, successful thing. And yet it's something that no one will have heard of ever until it's a film. So the bottom line in all this, if you're looking for the bottom line, is a character like Ant-Man is enjoying greater familiarity, greater awareness than huge legendary characters. And you've heard me mention them in recent podcasts than Tarzan. Then John Carter, Warlord of Mars, then The Shadow, then The Phantom, uh, Lone Ranger, huge cowboy, you know, uh, uh, cowboy heroes, fantasy heroes, pulp heroes. The, 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 you can go into a bookstore now and you can get books on, you know, novelizations of The Shadow, of Tarzan, of uh, John Carter, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon. Those are two that I was listening to. And you're like, Liefeld, you're dating yourself. I, I am, absolutely. Uh, this stuff's been around. It's been around, and, 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 it, and even though they keep trying to remake it, 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 it hasn't quite taken as yet. But the bottom line is that uh, I'm sure that they you know, never believed those, those authors, those characters, never thought they were going to lose ground to a character such as Wolverine, who you know, seemingly came out of nowhere, much less a character like Ant-Man, who now has a primary place on the shelf in pop culture of awareness, familiarity. And you guys, please, there's no resentment here. This is these, again, we're just sticking with the facts. We are just literally sticking with the facts. And that is how the media and movies have reset the comic book world and pop culture at large. And the fun part is we don't know what's coming next. And it's exciting. It's exciting to know that that is um, what is available. And hopefully... In, in in the instances of something like the authority, when the, the announcement breaks, people scramble and they look for the material. And because DC Comics, here's the one caveat of the headlines that you've been reading is there wasn't a fresh bat of there wasn't a fresh batch of authority that had been printed and sitting in uh, 
you know, in storage for you guys to grab. The DC Publishing didn't know what James Gunn was going to announce. That's that's the other thing. Nobody from DC Publishing was there. Nobody from DC Publishing was invited. In fact, I heard many of the uh, complete meltdowns that were happening from some of the DC Publishing higher ups who were excluded from all of this. So it, it wasn't like there was this was hand in hand. And by the time that they announced that the Authority or the Creature Commandos was coming, you know, it, part of this James Gunn, uh, uh, you know, mission statement, part part of his his cinematic plan. It'd be one thing if they had anticipated it and they'd loaded up, you know, booksellers and, and, and put in the backlog, 250,000 copies, whatever the stuff that got taken was the last stuff remaining. And that stuff hadn't been reprinted since in, in, in like the, the, the case of the authority we're talking seven years ago, seven years ago was the last time those authority books existed and they were sold out because there's very few copies available. So I know, I know that that's a big, a big deal and that they're celebrating the fact that, that 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 happened but again there's just a little again to take you a little further behind the curtains but anyway it's all cool it's um it it's it, it's great to examine how movies have reset comics how media has reset comics and uh and that's what we did and and i look forward to to what happens next uh and and all of the twists and the turns and the developments to come as you are aware at the end of every episode i read the reviews that you guys Share with me, and uh, I'm telling you, it, it, I am just continually blown away, and I say it every time uh, that I see the generous reviews that you are leaving for, for the show, and I, I, I am just, uh, <clears throat> I am always so just touched, and <laughs> uh, this is going to be, it's going to be a brief one, we're, we're going to brief one today, uh, but uh, <laughs> the uh, Oh boy. Um <laughs> the, the, there's uh there's uh, there's some funny guys here. Uh the uh the reviews that you guys read are so generous, are so fun. And this is one that I'm not sure that I have shared with you before. Um it's called Contagious Passion and it's from Pork Chop Express. I do not read I do not remember reading the Pork Chop Express. Uh, 13. So we know what we're going to do. We're going to read two today in case, in case I'm off on this. The contagious passion is when he na- labels this. It says, we live in a very jaded age and it's refreshing to listen to Rob's genuine passion for comics, but it's not just the passion. It's the information, an insider view, giving us an insight into the modern comic industry with fun, deep dives into the history of comics. If you are a comic book reader, you should give Rob's observations a listen. Hey, the Pork Chop Express 13. I didn't put the 13 on there, did I? The Pork Chop Express 13. I cannot tell you again, once again, how just completely touched I am that you took your time out and that you read this and uh, and, and posted this and uh, for all to see and help continue to build our platform. Thank you so very much. It is a jaded age. 100% it is a jaded age. And uh, I look, I just, um, I, I share this stuff to you the way I would talk to my friends. And I am so happy that you guys are along for the conversation and we're going to continue having that conversation. So thanks again, Pork Chop Express. And then the fastest, bestest review ever is Hidden Treasure from DChan000. DChan000 says, he calls the show a hidden treasure, gives us five stars and says, Rob keeps it real. Always listening to his stories makes my week better. Thank you, Rob. Hey, thank you, DChan. Thank you for tuning in. You guys, this is the way I give back. My podcast is the way that I give back. 
uh, three years uh, strong uh, mini seasons of off and on because occasionally I have to just take a few weeks off and reload. But we are 257 episodes into this experiment that is called Rob Observations. It is my gift to you. It is my gift to you, my my uh, giving back to everything that you've given to me in my career. It will always be something that you can access for free. <clears throat> I've done a great job of keeping it um, ad-free. You know, uh, I guess there'll come a day where somebody makes me an offer I can't refuse. But for now, none of them have been worth reading ads to you. <laughs> so you guys, just thankful, thankful so much that you guys um, are along with me. And again, this 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 is just my gift. Thanks. Thanks for going along with me, and uh, I, I appreciate it so much. And we will continue to be here on social media. I hope you follow me on Twitter. I'm all over the social media word world, and uh, Twitter is where you can find me pretty pretty much on a regular basis. I am Rob Robert Liefeld, R O B E R T L I E F E L D. I'm Robert Liefeld. The full name on Twitter, Blue Check verifies that it's really me. I hope you follow me. I love reading your comments. Your messages are back and forths. Whatever we're talking about, sports, um, entertainment, I try and shy completely away from anything besides sports entertainment. Uh, uh, conditions of the world, politics, I, I, I don't think that, that that's the stuff that I don't really partake in. I just like to keep it light, keep it fun, and I like to hear from you guys. And so uh, hopefully, uh, although talking sports sometimes is more inflaming to people than politics, uh, and that's a fact. But literally, Twitter Twitter is uh, is a really fun platform. I love engaging with you. Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Give me a, give me a follow. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you on Instagram where I show pictures of what I'm drawing, the food that I'm eating, um, the people that I'm hanging with my family. It's my, my, my photograph diary, my photographic diary dump. You can follow me over on, on, on Instagram. I am at Rob Life. Well, again, blue check verifies it's really me. I again, love reading your comments, your mentions, your DMS, the back and forth there is great. The interaction and the ability to talk to everybody is so fun. It's what I, I love the most and value the most about social media. No matter all of the different pratfalls, the, the connection that we get with each other is the best. I have a group of, over on Facebook. It's called Rob Liefeld. I just want to say Instagram again, Rob Liefeld, blue check, Rob Liefeld, Twitter, Robert Liefeld. Okay, now Facebook. I have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. We are building a killer group over there. Talking comics, art. We have art contests. Join us. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It is moderated by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. I say that because we will be the two that clicks you through. If it's not us, then you didn't go to the right place. <laughs> you didn't go to the wrong. You didn't go to the right Rob Liefeld group. Rob Liefeld, Marvel extreme and beyond we invite you to join in the conversation continue many of the conversations that we have here we continue over there some really great back and forth uh join us over there myself or terry sala will be the ones that click you through there is an app it's called whatnot i'm on it uh roughly twice a week whatnot is an app that you should download right now and it gives you an access to a million portals maybe a million maybe not quite a million selling trading cards anime manga uh, collectible card, collectible card games, uh, comic books, toys, action figures, Funko Pops. That's that's the category I'm in. Follow me, Rob Liefeld, on whatnot. I do two shows generally a week. If you follow me, you'll get notifications when my shows go li- go live. I sell original art. I sell signed custom comic books. What is a drop shadow chisel? What is a blood splatter chisel? What is a chisel in, in, in the first place? Find out. Follow me. Check it out. Uh, I draw on. Funko Pops, I had never done that till whatnot. I had never drawn 
uh, on anybody's Funko Pop window. I do Deadpool remarks on toys, on Funkos. I I love sharing this stuff with you. This is the way I get to you guys. I'm not doing um, any conventions right now. I'm not touring. Uh, I I haven't been to a show in six months. I don't plan on being anywhere for the next six months. So uh, it'll have been a year that I really took myself off the circuit. But I hope that you join me on whatnot when you you follow my show. Again, uh, I mean, right now, trading cards, signed trading cards, uh, toys, Funkos, original art and custom comics. I have, I have whatnot exclusives that we do there. I did a whatnot Deadpool new mutants cover a whatnot uh, Spider-Man exclusive cover. I did a whatnot brigade exclusive cover. These are so fun. Find me over there. This is where you can get this stuff. And uh, so give me a follow over on whatnot at uh, follow me at Rob Liefeld. I think that covers all the different places I'm hanging out. One guy even said, Liefeld, the only times I don't get you is Monday and Sunday. And I'm like, what? And he's like, between the podcast on Tuesday and Friday, and then your whatnots on, uh, on, on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and then you're always around. Like, I'm like, wow, I just, wow. And, and, and then my comic books will start coming back. Uh, Deadpool Batterblood is set to launch in June. Do not miss out. I'm, I'm excited to, to share that with you. You guys, I'm always rooting for you. I hope your mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being are in the best place they can be. And I know you're trying to get there in all four quadrants, in all four categories. I believe all of those need to be fed. I believe one of the ways they are fed is with rest, relaxation, and entertainment. Uh, feeding your mind with great art. What do we do in the pandemic? We all look to art. We look to music. We look to art, games, all forms of art. And I believe that is you know where we kind of reset and can get inspired. That's how I, that's how I do it. That's how I get inspired. I just hope that you are reading a great comic, watching a great movie, something streaming, a graphic novel. And you know me, I, I'm telling you right now, you got to do it with candy and chips and, and, and food. Maybe you like bougie uh, Italian food. I love those bougie Italian restaurants too. But I really like tacos and pizzas and, uh, and, and hamburgers and, and, uh, and more tacos and burritos and Reese's peanut butter cups. So join me in at least taking some time out of your week and kicking back and relaxing and getting inspired with some good cheat food uh, on, on uh, just combine your cheat days. And, and hopefully guys, you get refueled. That's the bottom line. Spend time with your loved ones, spend time with your friends, have fun, interact, tell stories. That's, that's what, that's what it's really about. I am rooting for you. I hope you're doing great. I hope your families are doing great. I'm going to be here. I hope you find me when I come back circle back around because I'm going to be here with a new episode because we most certainly absolutely inevitably will talk again real soon. 